There are two verses that are the crux of the debate in Islamic sources. Verse number one, which is in Surah Al-Ahzab, which is, and this is called the Hijab verse, which commands that if you ask, ask them something, you ask them behind the Hijab, from behind the Hijab. However, in Muslim discourses, pre-modern Muslim discourses on Hijab, this verse is rarely cited or even discussed. The discussion, the citing of this, this, this verse is a contemporary phenomenon. It's not a pre-modern phenomenon. Well, why isn't it a part of the pre-Islamic discourse? I mean, why isn't it a part of talking about hijab for women? Because it is well known that the them refers to who? To the wives of the Prophet. So, ayat al-hijab, the verse on hijab in Surah al-Ahzab, it came down saying that if you ask the wives of the Prophet for something, do it from behind some type of separation. Some have argued that it meant even a moral or spiritual separation. Hajaba means to exclude something, to hide something, to put behind something. Now, it was insolently, there were people going around competing about when the Prophet dies, who's going to marry his wives. I mean, insolence, insolence. Arab society was an insolent society. A very sexualized society and a very... And, and also this reflects their attitude towards women again. They wanted the honor of basically having the Prophet's wife. So Bukhari records that they would sit down and discuss, well, when he dies, I'm marrying her. No, 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 you can't marry her. I'm marrying her. I'm from this tribe. And she's... and so on. Islam had wanted to change and transform these attitudes, generally. These rather insolent, dismissive attitudes towards women. Particularly when you come and you, you, you're treating the, 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 the Prophet's wives as a prize to be coveted after his death. And we have numerous reports from Bukhari and Muslim and Nisai and Tirmidhi that frequently what would happen is that they would go and try to take sneak a peek to see which wife they would like to if you, if you remember, well, I mean, you might not even know this, but the, the Prophet's mosque was in Medina, and right attached to the mosque were the doors leading to his chambers. So when you open the door, you come out up, upon the mosque, right? These doors were often kept open, and when there would be a halaqa, people would sit inside the chambers and flow outwardly onto the mosque. Saudi Arabia, may Allah bless its soul, has thought it fit to tear down these, these chambers. So we have, or to even tear them down without photographing them, so we have no records of... But the description of ge ge geographers is that these chambers were basically the size of this room or smaller. You know where the, the Prophet's tomb is? Starting about two feet to, if you face, if you stand facing the Prophet's tomb, two feet to your right is where the Prophet's chambers used to be, used to start. So all of that was torn down and extended. They left the Prophet's grave as it is, and they built around it. They basically circled it with a, a fence and built around it and extended it. 
But, I mean, these used to be very small rooms in which privacy... And then the other thing that you, you should also know, that clothing was scarce. In Islamic legal books, you will find an enormous amount of debate, an enormous amount of discourse. You know about what? About the legality of praying in one piece of clothes or not. Why? People really, the clothing was scarce. So consequently, they would say, in prayer you have to cover from this part to this part. And then they write extensively about what if you don't have enough clothes to cover this part to this part. Or what if you have one thawb, only one. And consequently, when you wrap it, it, it leaves all types of gaps and holes. What this tells you is people were wearing on the skin. People were dressing on the skin, literally. The evidence, again, in Bukhari, the women went and complained to the prophets that the, women, that the men do not properly cover themselves because when they do sujood or they bend down or something, they see ungodly things because, of course, there's no underwear or anything like that. And they complained to the prophet about it. Can you imagine nowadays something like this happening? You want know, to say, you know, the men expose too much and we don't like that, tell them to cover up. But at the time of the prophet, it, it did happen. And the record is rather clear about them complaining, which then tells us two things. That one, again, the issue to the point about empowerment of women. The second is that concealing the body was not in any form what we conceive of it in the contemporary age. I mean, it is absurd today to think of someone who would basically live their life having no more than a single garment that they, they wrap around them and it covers whatever it covers. And there's debate in Islamic law books as to whether if you have a single garment, whether you should put it over the shoulder or wrap it around the waist because that's really what counts. Now, the hijab verse, the one if you ask them for something, ask them from what from behind the hijab, have to do with the wives of the Prophet. In other words, to bring an end to this type of insolence when you talk about the wives of the Prophet. You're going to talk about the wives of the Prophet, you're going to have to learn that there are rules. In other words, it is it is literally domesticating the undomesticated. Arabs were not a very domesticated people, not known for their fine manners. And Islam domesticated, taught them, in, in fact, the Quran itself. Why do you think the Quran bothers to talk about you need to knock before you go in, right? You've all read that, right? Oh, knock, and don't go in unless people tell you to come in. What does that tell you? That people didn't have that sense. That you would be sitting in your room with your wife doing whatever, and in fact, you, you're, you, literally, we have incidents upon incidents in which the woman is sitting there bathing because it all happens in one room, and you bring this big pot, right? And you put it in the middle of the room, and you bathe. That if you can't afford to go to the public public baths, that's how you're going to have to bathe. And you have these Bedouins coming in and opening the door, walking in. The idea of knocking and waiting to be admitted was foreign. So much so that instead of being handled through the Sunnah, the Quran sees it's necessary for the Quran itself to mention it. Because you think about it, it could have been just handled by the Prophet. The Prophet could have said, listen, don't do that. And we could have had a Sunnah on it. But no, it seems that not even the Prophet could bring an end to this instance. 
and that the, the, the Quran needed to address it directly. God needed to say, have manners. Learn to be domesticated. The, the, the sense of the society in which we are talking is crucial. I do not, I am not interested in hearing long speeches about hijab unless someone explains the historical context. Because without it, then the whole discourse is nonsense. Then we're really superimposing our contemporary standards. Why should you be in the position to superimpose anything? I am interested in knowing the divine will, not your will. And the divine will must be served by taking it seriously and through respecting it. And the divine will must be understood within the context in which the divine spoke. And that's why we have the whole tradition of Asbab al-Nuzul. Asbab al-Nuzul. The, the science of reason for revelation. Reason for revelation. Many of these books right there are on Asbab al-Nuzul. Why did people record reason for revelation? Because they care about what the divine says and why, why the divine says. In other words, if I read in Yazburi, someone who is more pious than, than any contemporary mullah I will ever meet in the United States. His encyclopedic knowledge of, of the divine commandment, in whether it's sunnah or hadith or, or, or Quran, is, is apparent in every sentence. And I have to accept the word of a two-bit imam who has memorized uh, a few verses from the Quran and has declared himself an authority? No way. It doesn't take much to memorize. If you have a good memory, you can memorize the Quran from cover to cover. Comprehension is different. Is it just memorization? I memorized the Quran by the time I was nine. Did I understand anything of it? No. Sure, you come to me. Start. I start from beginning. I can finish within three nights and days. I finish the whole Quran. Come and tell me what anything means. I'm nine years old. What do I mean? My teachers, by the time I was twelve, have required that I memorize ten thousand hadith. Fine. Come ask me what any hadith means. I didn't know. In fact, I had to learn that afterwards. It is just a matter of memorization. It's it really irks me that people think that it's just a matter of memorizing the Quranic verses and then superimposing their own hawa and their own will on the sources. That, 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 uh, that, that is haram. You want to know that the true nature of haram, that is haram. Why? Because it is an offense against respecting and taking the divine will seriously enough. Okay, that's the historical context. It is, it is crucial that you keep the historical context in mind. So if it's not Surah Al-Hijab, then what is it? Is it, it is Surah Al-Nur. Surah Al-Nur, verse 31. And the, the, the progression of the Surah is very material. It starts talking about what? All you who believe, do not enter other houses except yours, without first asking permission and saluting the inmate. In other words, not. Now, note here, this is better for you. You may happily take heed. If you find that no one is in, no one tells you to come in, then do not enter unless you have received permission. What does that tell you? It tells you that people would knock, they wouldn't get an answer, they just come in. Doesn't, it, doesn't that tell you that? Right? Otherwise the Quran would just be talking nonsense. It's saying, if you can believe the level of manners, you don't even have the sense that if you knock and no one says come in, not to come in. So the Quran first has, has to be very explicit with them. People knock. And if you don't Receive permission, don't go in. It gives you a sense of the type of, of mannerism that prevails. If you are asked to go away, turn back. That is proper for you. In other words, if, if you're asked to go away, don't sit. No, 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 I've got to see you. I have to talk to you. Excuse me, and you push and come in. 
Arab did do that. It sounds absurd to us, but he did do that. It was entirely proper. You would not even consider it impolite. Okay. God is aware of what you do. There is no harm in going into, into uninhabited houses. It's amazing. Look at how much emphasis. Where there is some convenience for you. God, as God has knowledge of what you hide and what you disclose. Tell the believing men to lower their eyes and guard their private parts. There is for them goodness in this. God is aware of what you do. Tell the believing women to lower their eyes, lower their gaze, guard their private parts, and not display their charm, except what is apparent outwardly, and cover their bosoms with their veils, and not to show their finery, except to their husbands, or their fathers, or fathers-in-law, and so on, so on, so forth, and then, after that, they should not walk stamping their feet, lest they make known what they hide of their ornaments. O believers, turn to God, every one of you, so that you may be successful. The Quran cannot be read as a dictionary. You have to understand the divine discourse as if you're sitting with someone having a conversation with you. If you leave this, this room here and you go and you quote me, a single sentence, nothing makes sense. You have to take what comes first. Now here it's talking about, note how many verses occur about the, the mannerisms of entering a house. It is talked about more than the issue of veiling itself. I mean, it's emphasized several times. Now let me ask you, how many contexts in which you've seen mobs split apart because of violations when it comes to knocking at the door? No. Frankly, no one cares. Yes, the Quran emphasizes it more than anything else in this context, but no one cares. And no one cares because it doesn't play the social dynamic. In fact, you will often find yourself in a context in which people don't want to follow. And I personally know that in many contexts you, you get upset. Someone will get upset because you tell them you don't answer. You knock and you don't answer. And then you see you were there and you didn't answer. And they get upset. And in many contexts, frequently, you will even be told by, in, 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 in the context of a mosque, well, you know, you, the idea of privacy the idea of privacy is not really high. But yet, when it comes and talks about this, would you say that this is a field of manners and etiquette? When you talk about knocking, to come in, permission, to enter, is this manners and etiquette? Isn't it? Now, after that, a child starts talking about lowering the gaze. What's the context here? Is that you're going to go into houses. You're going to go into homes. Don't go there gawking like the, 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 some of the believers used to do in the, in the prophet's house. Yes, they love him. Yes, they want to memorize everything, but he's not a show for their amusement. And similarly, learn modest humility. Don't go around staring at everything and don't go around staring at human beings. In addition to that, tell the believing men to lower their gaze and tell the believing men to cover their private parts. Tell the believing women to lower their gaze and cover their... Do you know, of course, to emphasize the point again, to tell, to come and say, tell the believing men and tell the believing women to lower each lower their gaze, revolutionary. Why, in fact, to even think that a woman would gaze at someone, that a woman would even have a desire, that she would even have... I mean, this is, this is hip stuff of the United States, of, of this century, where, you, where a woman would check out a man. The Quran here is acknowledging the possibility that a woman might be tempted to check, check out a man. 
in Arab culture and in, in medieval culture generally, it is an impossibility. The question of even if a woman had a sexual desire was often debated. You understand the, that this is, is nothing short of revolutionary discourse. The revolutionary discourse is in telling women to lower their gaze, and actually counting them in the discourse, and thinking of them at all. I mean, come on, let's be honest. When I raise, if I have a daughter and son, I'll tell my son, you know, don't go staring at the uh, this or that. I would never tell my daughter. I would never tell my daughter because it would be inconceivable for me that she would even think of it. That's, that's how we were raised. You would tell your daughter, don't let anyone stare at you, but you wouldn't tell your daughter, don't stare at anyone. Because it's inconceivable that she would even want to. The Quran comes and flips everything on its head. Now women and men are treated more or less as if they're in the same context. And then it says, and guard their private parts, fine. Then it says, and do not display their zina. The word is zina. Their ornament. Zina, in the Quranic verse it says, where your 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 ornaments at every mosque. Here zina is used in what to mean what? Where to the you know dress nicely before you go to the mosque. Now it doesn't it's it's general. It doesn't mention men specifically. In other words, it's used masculine form without specification to men. Does it apply to men and women? The rule in Arabic, rule in interpretation applies to men and women unless specified otherwise. Always applies to men and women, unless specified otherwise. And specification can be by language or by content. Now, here, when it comes and says, don't show your zina, illa ma zahra minha, except that which is apparent. Understanding. Lower your gaze understood. Private part, okay, then there, must, there, there are parts that should not be shown. But then it comes and says, it adds an element that is not mentioned in the context of men. And that element is zina, which could mean ornaments or dress or, or, or some type of addition to the body, except that which zahra means to be apparent. The opposite of zahra, muqabil al-zahir al-batin. The opposite of apparent is concealed. So, is it saying... The ornaments that are normally worn externally must be showed, I mean, could be showed, but if they are normally worn externally, I mean, if it's saying, for example, you could show your clothes, but what's new in that? I mean, people normally show their clothes. If it's, if it's, remember the other verse says, wear nice clothes. Zina comes from the word zayyana. Zayyana is to make something pretty. To make something pretty. So, zina, let them not display their, 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 their zina, except that which is apparent, which is zahir. What it's talking about, you see there are many possibilities. Either that the language is clear on its face, that you read it and say, yeah, I understand it perfectly. Or, if the language is not clear on its face, then it must be made sense of in light of asbab al-nuzul, or the context, historical context. If the language doesn't tell you clearly what it means, we, we, we have two choices. Either to say there is no intention, which is contrary to the divine understanding, or to say there is an intention, and we must search it. Okay, fine. If we look at the specific context, Zina could mean specific things, specific ornaments that it's referring to. It could mean earrings, for example. 
It could mean a certain type of necklace that people used to wear. In other words, what was the definition of zina? How would an Arab back then understand that word to mean? And how would an Arab back then understand the word zahara minha to mean? If, again, if it's just clothes, what's new about that? That you, you, get, you, ha- you can show your clothes. Then what is it saying? If it's earrings, then okay, fine. Then it's saying that if that's the definition of zina, then you can display these ornaments on top of your clothes which are forms of beautification. If it's neither this nor that, then why is it called Zina? So let's say it is the face and the hands. Why is it called Zina? Why is it called beautification? I mean, not to be disgusting, but I mean, as a matter of language, they're not the most beautiful part of the body. Who cares? I mean, you could make an argument for the face, but... So why is that word? Why did it say... Except the hands and the face. Is God incapable of speaking clearly and specifically? In fact, God, in the verse right before it, when it came to knocking at doors, it was extremely explicit. You see the, the relevance here? This is, this is how you do Quranic interpretation. The verse is just preceding it, extremely specific. Knock. You don't, you don't hear come in, you don't come in. If they tell you go away, you go away. That's extremely specific. The divine has no problem telling you what the divine wants. The verses that follow use words without specification. Two approaches. Okay, well, approach number one, say, well, the divine didn't basically use any word and didn't intend it. He was sort of obscured by accident. That's effectively what Muslims come and do nowadays and say, well, no, no. The divine was obscure, although it's not demeaning, it's not precise on its own terms. You need something else to give these words meaning. They act as if God did this by accident. Or you say, God intended the ambiguity. And if God intended the ambiguity, then why? If God intends not to be precise, God has a purpose. A human being is imprecise because a human being is deficient. If you're going to willing, if you're willing to accept that God is imprecise because he's deficient, then you're not a Muslim. It's simple as that. And if God is precise, when God wants to be precise, then you have to ask, when God does not want to be precise, what is the, what is the purpose here? Okay. So, we have this issue first. Second issue. Take the khimar. You know what that means? To render, to be seen through transparency. That's the word. It's translated as veil because people want it to mean veil. And what is the jayim? Literally translated, literally, they take their khimar and beat it, yadribna, from the word daraba, to beat, under jayim. Jayib, if you don't know Arabic, you think it means pocket, because that's what it means in the contemporary age. It would make no sense. They take their veils, beat their veils upon their pockets. The only way it would make any sense to you, if you go back again to the historical context and understand how the Arabs used the word. It kills me. I mean, after years of learning, you find some ignorant buffoon sitting there and telling you, Oh, you, you cannot choose interpretations of the Quran that are unclear. Okay, fine. Then read your, read the verse as a veil being beaten on the pocket. It's absurd. I mean, as Muslims, we have reached the point of suicidal absurdity. We don't even see our own schizophrenic 
schizophrenic and often quite psychotic intellectual delusions in, in a very real sense because we approach things with such careless leave as if we're not talking about the divine religion as if we're talking about you know the, your, 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 your shoe that you can, must, you can use in whichever way you want okay so what does jayb mean? jayb means it is this part of the chest this is a jayb and the, all the texts tell us that the women of Medina used to wear a scarf and that they would throw the scarf behind their back. This part, remember I said that the women of Rio would wear a vest? That their chest would be exposed. The cleavage area of the chest would be exposed. And as, as you'll see in a second, it comes, the command comes to bring that and cover the chest with it. We have a further question. Where was the Himar in the first place? Was it above the head? And basically, so it said, bring it from above the head and close it on your chest. What is the object of that law? To cover the chest or to cover the head? And if it covers the head, why doesn't it say so? Why does it mention the chest, not the head? Or is it assumed? Assumed in fact. In other words, by saying the veil, it is assumed. When, then what does that then do? Then you must know what the veil means. I mean, if you say it's assumed in fact, then we have to investigate the history of Veiling, history of not veiling, but khimar. Since it says khimar, and it doesn't tell you exactly where the khimar begins and ends, you have to investigate. Now here the riwayat. Riwayat, the, the narrations start coming in. Okay, so now we, we're up to this issue of what is the khimar. And here we have several narrations. Narration one. The women of Medina used to wear their veil half behind their back, uh, with their chest exposed. The verse came telling them to cover the chest. In other words, their veils behind, cast behind their back, so how would it look? How would it then be structured? You basically throw it behind and walk, and it sort of flies behind you. And with the chest exposed, so if you're you come and you cover your chest. You tuck it in. Another report. Aisha reports to have said, Oh, how wonderful the women of Medina were. When this verse were revealed, all of them tore, note here, tore pieces of their garment and covered with it so they all looked like crows. In other words, everyone became dressed in black that if you would have looked at them, it's as if you're seeing crows. What's the problem in this narration? The problem is that she says, tore from their garment. In other words, they, weren't, they didn't already have a khimar. The argument then, you know, the argument from the Quranic verse is what? The khimar already exists on your head if it's not cast behind your back. The, the second report is, it's above the head. And then you bring it and you close it on your chest. You don't know what happens to the neck. No, no one says anything about the neck. But it's a chest. Fine. But then Aisha's report comes and tells us that they tore their garments to cover their head. But the Quranic verse seems to assume that the khimar is already there. And either already there around the neck or already there around the head. Do you see the point? Do you see the problem? Then when you say, they all looked like crows. Why black? It's not consistent with the colors that Medina women used to wear. I mean, either we're going to declare other sunnah unauthentic or we're going to declare this one unauthentic. We can't have it both ways. I mean, we can't believe the prophet that the prophet said, that in Medina, where people wore the green and the, the, the red and the yellow and so on, 
the most beloved color to God is green, for example, that's a hadith. Either you're going to declare this hadith unauthentic or you're going to declare this one. Because here Aisha tells us everyone was black. Or it's reported that Aisha tells us. You, you start investigating, you find that, well, people wore in Medina clothes of different colors. Medina was known for its colorful aspects. Looked like crows. It makes sense if you're flying with a helicopter and you look down and you see a bunch of black heads. Then you might. I mean, I don't know, crows or maybe cockroaches or something. But if you are at the same dimensional level of analysis, in other words, you, you're there and you're looking at this, why crows? In addition to that, the hadith of, of ahadi nature and muqatah. It's missing the link. Based on this, by the way, Maududi declares it unauthentic. Because Maududi wants to argue for the veiling of the face. And so, he said, based on this type of analysis, there's other material. Hadith in which the Prophet, talking to Asma, he comes in, and, no, and she's wearing something transparent. And he's, he basically turns his, his face aside, and he says, Asma, after a woman reaches a certain age, all that should show from her is her hand and her face. The problem again with the hadith is that it's a hadith, and consequently it, it cannot establish certainty of knowledge. It only establishes probability of knowledge. In other words, we cannot be completely sure that the Prophet said it. We can say he probably did, but we can't say, oh, he's sure he did. That's the difference between a hadith and mutawatir. Hadith mutawatir, we say we are pretty certain. Hadith ahadi, we say we're not, we can't be completely certain. We can just be, say, probably. I mean, there are basically different levels of authenticity of hadith. Both are declared sahih. That's another problem, that when you come and say sahih Bukhari, fine, but yeah, sahih Bukhari includes, including hadith that have defects in transmission, such as a muqatah. In other words, a missing link. All of these hadith technically are declared sahih. You come to hadith Asma, again, it tells us something about the, the social forms of dress in Medina at the time, again, transparent clothes. And the context by which the Qur'an came to advocate modesty. 